Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In section two of The Ethics of Ambiguity, Simone de Beauvoir analyzes a number of different types of people who are, you could say, making a bad use or an inauthentic use of their own fundamental human freedom. And the third of these is the nihilist. This is a term that has been used in a number of different, usually related ways. So we should pause for a moment and talk a little bit about where she's getting this term from and what she means by it. Now, some of that will be revealed in the analysis itself, but we should remark that nihilism is a term that, although it goes back to the late 18th century, it doesn't really make its way into to European culture until the mid part of the 19th century. And it's used for, I mean, coming from Latin, nihil, meaning nothing. So it's used for some sort of relationship of the human being to nothingness. And in a very broad sense, it can be used for those who are contesting, tearing down, rejecting conventional values and understandings of the human condition, of society, of morality. Morality doesn't necessarily mean a, you know, worshiping or believing in nothing. Some of the early Russian nihilists talk that way. Others, you know, seem to have an appreciation for science, at least in a useful sense that a pure nihilism would probably go against. And it's often used, now switching a little bit further ahead, it's often used as a term of critique or derision by people who want to say that this group over here by not respecting certain values are not believing in any values whatsoever. And that's sometimes the case and sometimes not the case. Nietzsche identified nihilism as the great problem for the 20th century, for the century to come from his point of view. De Beauvoir thinks that there are a lot of different types of nihilism or different modes of nihilism, but they come back to the same basic problematic. So she talks about nihilism as, at least in some sense, disappointed seriousness that is turned back on itself. And what do we mean by seriousness? Well, the serious person takes some sort of value and it's a value that they received not by deriving it themselves, but by getting it from somebody else and they elevate it into an absolute or something that is unconditioned. They orient their own portment, decision-making, advocacy around that, subordinate everything else to it. There's a bit of a trade-off. They get to view themselves as being the person who's really in the know and the person who's defending the, the really important value. Could be multiple values so long as they're all tied together in some kind of system. And when you realize what Nietzsche called the devaluation of values, namely that these values don't really hold up when you've been, say, betrayed by the cause that you bought into and sold everything for and put your reputation on the line for, and then found out that 
that they were just as bad as everybody else or just as venial or corrupt. It's easy to slip into a kind of nihilism when you are the you know great example of this, when you're the buy-in person who says, oh, if I just act like a good boy or a nice girl within the system and do what's expected of me, I'll be rewarded. And then you find out that it doesn't really work that way. People get, as we say, burnt out. And then they start doing all sorts of other things. They swing to the other extreme and become a bad boy, right? For a little while. And, and that might be a form of, of nihilism. So seriousness, thinking that there should be something that I can believe in, I can take for granted. I can at least make my stand on this point and I'll, everything will be okay. Turns out that's not the case. That drive gets turned back in on itself. And she talks about the nihilist as ridding themselves of the anxiety of freedom by denying the world and themselves. And over and over again, she stresses that this denial is not really possible in a full sense, that there's always a certain hidden positivity and determinateness within nihilism. So, you know, she says he wants to be nothing and this nothing that he dreams of is still another kind of being. The exact Hegelian antithesis of being a stationary datum. Nihilism is disappointed seriousness turned back on itself. A choice of this kind is not encountered among those who feeling the joy of existence assume its gratuity. It appears either at the moment of adolescence when the individual seeing his child's universe flows away, feels the lack in his heart, or later on when the attempts to fulfill himself as a being have failed. In any case, among people who wish to rid themselves of the anxiety of their freedom. And she says, by this rejection, they draw close to the subhuman, but they're not the subhuman. They're a different type because they're continually engaged in this process of negating. And before looking at the different modes, which is where she goes next, talking about, for example, Baudelaire, we should look at the relationship and the contrast between her form of existentialism and nihilism. So a little bit earlier, right? She said that instead of realizing their negativity as a living movement, this person conceives their annihilation in a substantial way, right? What does this mean, realizing their negativity as a living movement? It means embracing the world and oneself as you might say unfinished things that we have to take an active role in determining and we have to do so on the basis of a freedom that is afforded to us and a existentialist primal upsurge into being that we are responsible for our facticity. So instead of that, the nihilist wants to annihilate things, annihilate the world, annihilate themselves, annihilate values in some sort of substantive way. They could have gone a different way. She also talks a little bit later about this will to negation. And she says that it's always belying itself. That means it's, it's showing itself to be false. Why? Because it manifests itself as a presence at the very moment it displays itself. And then she says, here's a very interesting idea. It implies a constant tension. Right? Tension means that there's some sort of unresolved thing and there's polarities to it. And they both are, but they can't be made entirely compatible. So what's really interesting is she says that this is a tension inversely symmetrical with the existential and more painful tension. Why? Why is it connected with the existential tension and why is it inverse to it? So she says, if it's true that the human being is not, it's also true that they exist. And in order to realize their negativity positively, he will have to contradict constantly the movement of existence. 
So the nihilist is attempting to deny the, you could call it the existentialist conception of the human condition and to slip into something else instead. But there's still a tension there so long as they remain alive because their negating can't ever be a full negation. There's also this discussion about defining the human as a lack at the heart of the existence. So she goes on and she says, there's a certain truth to the nihilist attitude. We experience the ambiguity of the human condition, but the mistake is that the nihilist attitude defines the human being not as the positive existence of a lack, which is what the existentialists are saying, right? So positive existence, of something that is, is negative, a lack, a lack of being. We are not simply objects. We as consciousnesses are a negativity that is at the same time also a, you know, this is gonna sound paradoxical, a positivity of that very negativity, like a registering of it. So the nihilist instead, it defines the human being as a lack at the heart of existence. And she says, the truth is that existence is not a lack as such. And if freedom is experienced in the case of the form of rejection, it's not genuinely fulfilled. The freedom, the negativity involved in freedom that we have is a different sort of negativity as that involved in simply rejection and negation or tearing down. You could say that if we want to use technical terms here, the existentialists like Sartre and de Beauvoir, and they're also taking this from Heidegger, talk about nihilating comportments. The nihilist is restricting themselves to just a certain set of nihilating comportments, right? And interestingly, rejecting the rest or denying the rest. So there's actually something quite complicated here. And she goes on further, and this is a little bit easier to wrap your head around, I think, because it's more moral than metaphysical. She says that the problem with nihilism is that it remains at this realization that the world lacks justification and that a human being, strictly speaking, is not anything. They are, in a certain respect, a nothing. So she says what they're forgetting is that it's up to the human being after that realization to justify the world and to make themselves exist validly. So existentialism doesn't just stop with this realization that any value that we pick, we're the ones picking it. There is no ultimate justification for why we pick this one over this one. We have to take responsibility for that. So the existentialist as opposed to the nihilist says, okay, let me pick on the best basis I can. Let me be responsible for this. Whereas the nihilist says, oh, it's all bullshit. It's all bad. None of it's any good. None of it lives up to what the serious person wanted. And that's a fundamental mistake on their part. So the nihilist kind of goes partly down the existentialist path and then goes off into whatever the nothing is that they're aiming at. Whereas the existentialist moves ahead. Like she says, the fundamental fault of the nihilist is that challenging all given values, he does not find beyond their ruin the importance of that universal absolute end. What is that for the existentialist? Which freedom itself is. Freedom itself is the end, is the value for de Beauvoir in the ethics of ambiguity and for existentialists in general. There can be other values as well, but that is a central part of existentialism, at least as many influential existentialists understand it. And so the nihilist is in certain respects not going far enough. They're stopping short. 
and remaining within a position that while true in a certain respect, turns into a falsehood when you just stay there. Now she talks about several different modes of this. And I think that this is a decent analysis. I wouldn't say that it's a comprehensive analysis of all the different possible modes, but some of these are quite important. She talks about this rejection of the serious world while maintaining the serious world as what you're rejecting. And she uses Baudelaire as a prime example of this. If you've never read Baudelaire, you really should because his poetry is, is pretty awesome. But there is this tendency within his work. Like she says, Baudelaire felt a burning rancor in regard to the values of his childhood, but this rancor still involves some respect. Scorn alone liberated him. It was necessary that this universe which he rejected continue in order for him to detest and scoff at it. You have to have it there to reject. You can't have this attitude without maintaining the thing that you're saying no to. So there's a kind of inauthenticity to that, even though you're living out a, a very unconventional lifestyle. She also talks about the demoniacal man saying they're very close to the serious. They want to believe in it. They confirm it by their very revolt. They feel themselves as a negation and a freedom, but they don't realize this freedom as a positive liberation. And we can see discussions of the demoniacal in, for example, Kierkegaard, in Dostoevsky, in, in all sorts of other authors. Going further, she says, you can annihilate the rejected world and the self. And there are a number of different ways in which people do this concretely. She gives a few really interesting examples here. The person who gives themselves to a cause which they know to be lost chooses to merge the world with one of its aspects, which carries within it the germ of its ruin, involving himself in this condemned universe and condemning himself with it. We could often call this the tragic figure, right? The, the loser who realizes that they just can't win, the world is against them, but they're gonna fight against it anyway. That can be nihilistic. She's got another example. Another person devotes his time and energy to an undertaking which was not doomed to failure at the start, but which he himself is bent on ruining. Now project there could be all sorts of things. Becoming rich and then handicapping oneself along the way, sabotaging oneself, we often say. The project could also be relational. It could be a marriage. It could be parenthood. It could be becoming a better person oneself, right? Through some sort of program. But this person is always undermining themselves because they don't really want the project to succeed. Another, she says, rejects each of their projects one after the other, frittering them away in a series of caprices, thereby systematically annulling the ends at which they're aiming at. The person who moves from project to project to project or within sub-projects, you could say, and never really gets anything done, never really finishes what they intended to do because they found something else that's cool. Now in our world and also in her time as well, there are entire industries that cater to this, aren't there? I mean, she brought up a little bit earlier in the book, the woman of fashion, the fashion industry is all about that. Now the individual designers are seeing things through, but the person who is putting together an ensemble 
you know, to make their life finally complete. It's an endless project. She, de Beauvoir, talks about the Dadaists, right? And she says, the constant negation of the word by the word, of the act by the art, of art by art, was realized by Dadaist incoherence. Following a strict injunction to commit disorder and anarchy, you thereby achieve the abolition of all behavior and there of all ends uh, in itself. She also talks about the destruction of the self through physical suicide. There's other longer ways to do this. She talks about destroying their bodies, ruining their mind by drugs. You could do this just as well with alcohol, right? Others succeeded in a kind of moral suicide, she said. They found themselves in a desert, reduced to the level of the sub-man. So that's another possibility. She also brings up those who leave the nihilist attitude by seeking out the security of the serious. And we don't really need to say that much about them. They just become the serious person, right? And they're in that dynamic. But she does talk about the erection of a new kind of ethics, an ethics of negativity. She says, the negation of aesthetic, spiritual, and moral values has become an, an ethics. Unruliness has become a rule. We've been present at the establishment of a new church with its dogmas, rites, faithful priests, even its martyrs. She says there's nothing of the destroyer in Breton. He is a pope, meaning he is pronouncing and people are following. And she says that, you know, the surrealists themselves fit into this as well. You can, you can only go so far with saying no all the time, with rejecting, with subverting, with doing all these nihilative behaviors. Finally, she talks about another thing that's very important. She brings up the Nazis as an example of this. Nihilism can also lead into a desire for power because if it's all, if we're going to take this cynical attitude, it's all BS. Everybody's just screwing each other over. Nothing really matters. Well, some people say, why shouldn't I get rich? And others would say, well, being rich is cool. Being famous is cool. Power seems to be something that is still there is still attractive that I could aim at. And then when you get it, you find out it's not everything that you thought it was. It's not as good. And then you can be nihilistic again. And so this can be a desire for power, a desire for destruction, for seeing the effects of what one does. She brings up the author Drew La Rochelle and talks about in his hatred of himself, he chose to reject his condition as a human being. This led him to hate all other people along with themselves. He knows satisfaction only when he fires on Spanish workers and sees the flow of blood. The only salvation is the death of other men by which perfect negation is achieved. And then Drew de la Rochelle, who was actually a collaborator with the Nazi regime, kills himself in the end. So there's a lot of different modes, a lot of different ways of partially denying one's freedom, not taking responsibility for the negative within the human being that is, is there, that, that does have to be addressed. And so she thinks that existentialism instead, making freedom the, the prime value and taking responsibility for it is the way, the, the best way out of nihilism rather than lapsing into the subperson or lapsing into the serious or following nihilism through to its end. So nihilism is also an inauthentic mode of existence for de Beauvoir. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, 
keep studying these great philosophical works.